You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1878th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 12th of May 2022. The editor of this edition is Claire Meller. The producer is Pat Needham and your readers are Nick and Jill Gain. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. Today, there are only two headlines. Rural areas delight over cash pledge. Disabled access in town centre is a nightmare. With growing anger at the loss of bank branches across rural Suffolk, there was delight as the government pledged a new law to guarantee access to cash. As part of the Queen's speech, it was announced that new plans would be brought forward to ensure places to withdraw and deposit cash continue to be easily available. In recent months, residents and businesses have bemoaned the closure of banks and building societies, citing the long trek to larger towns to get cash or deposit takings as the main problem. Johnny Walker, Mayor of Eye, a market town where there have long been concerns over access to cash, was thrilled at the pledge from the government. He said, it's absolutely brilliant. In North Suffolk, we have one of the largest concentrations of elderly people in the country, and most older people like to use cash. It all fell apart when the bank closed in September 2018. Since then, people have had to rely on the post office and an ATM. The nearest bank is in Dis. Mr Walker said McColl's recent financial difficulties had caused fears to re-emerge as the I-Branch hosts the town's post office. John Glenn, Economic Secretary of the Treasury, said, We know access to cash is still vital for many people, especially those in vulnerable groups. We promised we would protect it, and through this bill we are delivering on that promise. A Bury St Edmunds man has branded disabled access around the town as a nightmare after his mobility scooter became wedged between the pavement and the road. Peter Fuller, who has primary progressive multiple sclerosis, has called on Suffolk Highways to sort out access points, such as dropped curbs, after a temporary ramp near to the town's former post office development in Cornhill gave way when he went over it. He said the incident was the final straw. The 70-year-old of Vinery Road said, The slip had the potential to tip me up and could have been far worse. Fortunately, it was not, and a member of the public was there to very kindly help my wife Christine lift me back onto the pavement. But it just reinforces for me that within the town centre generally, it is very difficult for people who depend on a wheelchair or a mobility scooter to manoeuvre around. The former St Edmundsbury Borough Council town planner said the growing number of A-boards on the town's pavement and the continuing deterioration of its dropped curbs had created issues. He said, The highways are deteriorating significantly here, with dropped curbs now having upstands or lips that do not allow you to get onto the pavement. 
A place adjacent to the Corn Exchange even has a hole below it, which is not conducive for wheelchair users at all. With these issues, you just find yourself going up and down streets to find a way around, which should not be the case for anyone. The authorities are trying to encourage people to come back to the town centre, but here you have examples contradicting that objective. I do not like going to town now simply because it is a nightmare. But he did applaud the Apex and the Theatre Royal, which he said went out of their way to accommodate people in wheelchairs. He added that their example should be taken on board by others. In terms of town access, some of it is down to a lack of thought for disabled people, really. I would challenge any councillor who looks after this town to go around in a wheelchair, he said. If they put themselves in our shoes, they would soon realise the problems. In response, Suffolk Highway said it had requested that the temporary ramp was replaced by the development's contractors. A spokesperson added that this location and the wider area was inspected every three months and the pavement, which included the kerbs, was inspected every four weeks. Between these inspections, any reports received would be reviewed and if any defects were found which met the criteria set out in the Highway Maintenance Operational Plan, these works would be ordered. Old and costly swimming pool hit by antisocial behaviour to be demolished. A redundant swimming pool in West Suffolk will be demolished. The pool complex in Recreation Way in Mildenhall closed and had become an attraction for antisocial behaviour, a report to West Suffolk Council said. A new pool facility opened in the Mildenhall hub last year, leaving the current building vacant. The report said the redundant unit, which was built in 1975, was too costly to maintain. The council's supporting statement said, The swimming pool complex is old and costly to maintain and operate to current standards. West Suffolk Council made the decision to relocate to another site in Mildenhall. The leisure pool has now moved to Mildenhall Hub to purpose-built modern facilities. The existing complex is therefore now redundant and vacant. Since becoming vacant, the structure has attracted significant antisocial behaviour and has been secured by West Suffolk Council with steel security fencing and steel door and window shutters. The ongoing antisocial behaviour remains, however, and is becoming a nuisance to local residents, police and businesses alike. Last week, the Authorities Development Control Committee agreed that prior approval of the method of demolition was not needed, but planning officers were satisfied the method of demolition and restoration of the site were acceptable. The council said the building will be soft stripped of fixtures and fittings and dust screening added to reduce the impact of demolition work. It confirmed that the road would remain open. It is understood that limited amounts of asbestos exist, but licensed contractors will deal with the material safely. Once demolition work is completed, the land will be levelled and further investment in the adjacent memorial garden is planned. The path is set to be widened and two electric vehicle charging points installed. Councillor Sarah Broughton, Conservative Cabinet Member for Resources and Property, said, Now that the Mildenhall hub is open and doing so well, we can make interim plans to demolish the old site and improve the area. Not only investing with the community, 
in the Memorial Garden, but as part of our aim to be carbon neutral by 2030, installing electric vehicle rapid charging points to help current and future generations. Queen's Baton Rally set to pass through Bury St Edmunds. As the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham draw near, the route for the Queen's Baton Relay has been revealed, with one Suffolk town being named on the route. On Saturday, July the 9th, the Queen's Baton will pass through Bury St Edmunds in West Suffolk as it completes a route around the country in the run-up to the Games. The Baton's journey will begin on June the 2nd in London before making its way around the country, visiting more than 180 communities in England in a route spanning 2,500 miles. Members of the public are encouraged to get involved with the celebrations and embrace the arrival of the Baton, taking the opportunity to experience the buzz of Birmingham 2022 in their community. Suffolk will also be represented at the Games by Ipswich squash player Lucy Turmel. Thousands of baton bearers, each with inspiring backgrounds and stories, will have the honour of carrying the baton during the journey through England, including those nominated in recognition of their contributions to their local community, whether that be in sport, education, the arts, culture or charity. Between 40 and 130 baton bearers will carry the baton each day across land, sea and air. Nigel Huddleston, Minister for the Commonwealth Games, said the 2022 Queen's Baton Relay is coming home. Travelling the length and breadth of England, the baton will bring the excitement of the Birmingham Commonwealth Games to every region of the country. The relay marks the final countdown to the biggest sporting event to be held in the UK since London 2012 and I hope people come together and line their streets to celebrate this historic moment. Also in the east of England, the Baton will stop by Great Yarmouth, Kings Lynn and Cambridge on July the 9th. Marsh Harrier Nest Discovery ruffles feathers at Energy Firm. Energy Firm EDF has said it will liaise with relevant authorities over part of its plans for Sizewell Sea after a Marsh Harrier Nest was discovered. The nest was identified by Sizewell Sea ornithologists on EDF land within the Sizewell Marsh's Site of Special Scientific Interest, the company said. Two further nests have also been recorded at Oldhurst Farm, a 67-hectare habitat scheme, which was created in 2014-15. EDF said it will liaise with stakeholders, including East Suffolk Council and Natural England, to see what, if any, consequences this has for its planning application for the proposed geotechnical trials on land north of Sizewell B. Dr Stephen Mannings, Consents Manager for Sizewell C, said, The discovery of breeding marsh harriers on the EDF Sizewell estate is more evidence of the great care we take in managing our land so that wildlife is able to flourish. We have put in place measures to protect the nests which will remain in place throughout this year's breeding season. We are committed to protecting and promoting local wildlife before, during and after the construction of Sizewell Sea, which is why we have already created over 250 acres of new habitats on former arable land within our estate. EDF said the Department of Business Energy Industrial Strategy, BEIS, and the Planning Inspectorate have been informed 
and updates have been made to relevant ecological assessments submitted in support of the application for development consent. This has included an addendum to the Shadow Habitats Regulations Assessment provided for the project. The company said EDF said its environment team of experts, including ornithologists, work closely with the construction team to plan work in sensitive areas, including pre-work surveys to ensure wildlife is protected. The company's ecologists have defined wide control buffer zone around all nests, within which activities and work are being strictly controlled to avoid visual and noise disturbance. The energy giant added that only activities and works that are assessed not to be potential source of disturbance are permitted, and its controls also require monitoring of the behaviours of the birds, while permitted works are being undertaken. An East of England retail chain has bounced back into profit after a tough year. East of England co-op boss Doug Field said the resolve shown by staff had been staggering as the retailer revealed pre-tax its profits rose by 9.3 million in 21-22 to stand at 7.6 million. It followed a loss of 1.7 million in the previous year. The independent grocery chain which is based at Worstead near Ipswich and operates 230 outlets across Norfolk, Suffolk and Essex, said the turnaround was down to an increase in the value of its investment property portfolio and not having the one-off costs seen in 2020-21. Joint Chief Executive Mr Field said, it's been a much tougher 12 months than we anticipated due to factors outside of our control. However, the resolve shown by our colleagues in dealing with the challenges we faced has been staggering. They deserve all the credit for our positive impact in the region. Despite it being a challenging year, we're pleased to have recorded a growth in pre-tax profits and increases in sales across our investment property, petrol filling stations, funeral and stonemasonry businesses. Overall, we are ending the 2021-22 financial year with a strong balance sheet and sound finances and we have the funds and resources to continue to invest in growing our business. We will also continue to work hard to improve the daily lives of our members, communities, customers and colleagues. The success of our co-op is based on this foundation and will continue to support our communities through these changing times. Last year, the retailer awarded more than £200,000 worth of grants to local voluntary, community and social enterprise organisations through its Community Cares Fund. It also donated more than £22,000 to 25 food banks across Suffolk, Essex and Norfolk. Assembling the evidence. In 1961, Mavis Baker, a field walker, found the name of Hellisden Ley near Bradfield St Clair on an old tithe map. Ley, an Anglo-Saxon word for a forest clearing, can also be a meadow, pasture or even untilled land. Brought to the attention of local renowned archaeologist Dr Stanley West, further investigation by him came across a Sutton Hall nearby. Question. Is Hellisden a modern version of Heigelisden, the site of Edmund's martyrdom, and then his body taken to rest in a makeshift chapel at Southern or Sutton? Eventually, Edmund was removed to a wooden church 
at Bodorexworth, the homestead, warp or worth of Bederic. Here, around 633 AD, King Sigeberht had established a royal vill parish and monastery. Therefore, it made sense for Edmund to have ended up there, the nearest religious site. To add weight to this theory, at Ruffham, a short distance from Bury St Edmunds and Bradfield St Clair, there is Kingshall Street and Kingshall Green, or Farm. And at Bradfield Combust, there was a manor belonging to the Abbey of St Edmundsbury, destroyed by rioting townspeople in 1327, hence its unusual name. Not far from here rises the River Lark, another important piece of the jigsaw of this fascinating story. Also, at the Abbey itself stood Bradesfeld Hall, or Bradfield Hall. Surely these connections cannot be coincidental. There is a Hellesdun near Norwich, put forward at one time as Edmund's place of martyrdom, as had Ling, a small Norfolk village. This once had a tiny chapel dedicated to St Edmund, but both these have been repudiated in recent years. Strangely, there are more churches dedicated to St Edmund in Norfolk than in Suffolk. Canute's father, Sven Forkbeard, anecdotally threatened to despoil Edmund's shrine, consequently suffering a horrific death at the hands of Edmund via a vision at Gainsborough in 1014. Possibly in atonement for his father in 1020, Canute the Danish Christian king of all England gave a rotunda stone church replacing the wooden church which contained Edmund's shrine. Edmund, canonised soon after his death, would eventually have an enormous abbey church built to house his shrine. In 1038, the town became Sancta Edmund Birig. Birig's a corruption of Berg, a fortified town, eventually becoming Bury St Edmunds. And as they say, the rest is history. The secrets of Bury St Edmunds' former abbey have been revealed in a new book by a town historian to celebrate its 1000th anniversary. Martin Taylor has brought together a series of articles published in the Bury Free Press about the history and heritage of the site in his tenth book, Abbey 1000, which includes extra details and 92 illustrations. Celebrations to mark the millennium of the Abbey, including exhibitions and a spectacle of light, was postponed from 2020 to this year due to the pandemic. Martin said he had tried to make the book accessible to all with an interesting storyline about St Edmund, the first patron saint of England. Without him, there would be no abbey, nor Bury St Edmunds, he said. If the magnificent abbey church of St Edmund, founded in 1020 by King Canute, was still intact today, Bury St Edmunds would not have evolved into a wonderful market town. It would be a sprawling metropolis, a city, he said. It is against this background Bury St Edmunds still managed to find its own identity. I hope Abbey 1000 is looked upon as a souvenir of the millennium of the Abbey. Among the surprising details he discovered while researching was the length of time it took to complete the building of the Abbey Church, nearly 130 years, and the question of what happened to St Edmund. Despite the 500 years plus of the existence of the Abbey and the town controlled by it, there were still times when the residents rose up against the Abbey, said Martin. 
At the dissolution, Edmund's body was not in the Abbey, a mystery that still needs resolving despite the incredible wealth of documentation pertaining to the Abbey that survives today. Abbey 1000 is self-published in conjunction with Premier Printers of Bury St Edmunds and is £10.95. Top of the tips. It's only around for a very short while, so we need to make the most of it. What is it? Asparagus. Cass's Maria Broadbent looks at the history of this prized vegetable and gives us some tasty recipes to try while it's in season. There are few ingredients that justify the idea of eating seasonally more than asparagus. Few fruit and vegetables travel long distances well, nor keep for an extended shelf life. There are a number of reasons for this, and the two key ones are 1. The natural sugar in fruit and vegetables immediately starts to convert to starch upon picking. Hence why a famous producer of frozen peas shouts so loudly about how quickly their peas are frozen. And 2. In order for fresh produce to arrive in a firm, not over-ripened and attractive condition, it is picked before it has reached optimum ripeness and therefore flavour. As such, even without the environmental arguments or the cost of implications, these are good reasons to source as much local and seasonal produce as possible. English asparagus has a short season, so get in there fast as it runs through May and June only. Before we look at how to cook and indeed eat asparagus, a little of its history. Asparagus has been eaten in ancient Rome, Greece and Egypt, as well as having a long and loved tradition in France. Searching the etymology, I found that Persian word asparag means sprout or shoot. Medieval Latin saw it called sparaci, sparagi, anglicised to sperach, sperurge, but remains spelled as asparagus in line with the Latin. This, however, was in the posh circles and was considered pedantry by the folk. The folk, common name from Shakespeare's era through to Queen Victoria's reign, was sparrow grass. The genus of the asparagus family has set up to 300 relatives and they are scattered from Siberia to Southern Africa. Primarily, it's cultivated as a vegetable, although several African species are grown as ornamental plants. Growing up, we had asparagus ferns that grew randomly around the garden, and my mum used the pretty feathery fronds with picked flowers in a vase. Growing asparagus is a labour of love and patience. It takes two years to establish an asparagus bed, and they can produce spears for up to 15 years, needing rest periods to cover. The cutting season is from as little as two weeks to a maximum of 12 weeks. In Germany, they cultivate asparagus away from any light. This prevents the production of chlorophyll, which means the stems stay white rather than turning green. This method produces more fibrous yet more de delicately flavoured spears. They need peeling and are highly prized as a delicacy in various European countries. Now on to the cooking and eating. Low in calories, unless smothered in butter, or hollandaise sauce, asparagus has a number of other dietary claims, containing antioxidants, aiding digestion, claiming 
folates for pregnancy, and potassium for blood pressure. The best way to cook asparagus is in a basket. You can buy the special pan and basket set, but as long as you have a fairly deep pan, then a simple basket will suffice. However, if you eat asparagus in space, there are some very good combi plans and baskets out there. The purpose of this method is you put the base of the spears into the water and leave the pointed end with the little leaves above the water so they steam. And I'm continuing on the theme of asparagus. This is how to eat asparagus. Asparagus is always eaten with the left hand and never with a knife and fork, the etiquette book says severely, before going on to instruct that you eat the stalks down to about an inch and a half from the end. It is a solecism to guzzle up these stumps and leave nothing on your plate. And now I have five random facts about asparagus. Number one, many of the different species are what are called dioecious, meaning plants are either male or female. Number two, asparagusic acid is a non-toxic sulphur-containing compound that may cause your pea to have a distinct odour after eating asparagus. Number three, the common name from Shakespeare's era through to Queen Victoria's reign was sparrowgrass. Number four, Argentois, in classic French culinary terminology, refers to an asparagus garnish. And number five, asparagus should be eaten with your fingers. Nostalgia, looking back. So, ten years ago, emotional homecoming for two squadron RAF regiments. It was an emotional homecoming for two squadron RAF regiment in 2012, as families agreed, sorry, families greeted the 122 airmen and women. They had arrived at RAF Honington earlier than expected after a tour at Camp Bastion in Afghanistan. Many of the squadron had not seen their loved ones since October the year before. Jenny O'Keefe's husband, Corporal O'Keefe, had returned from his eighth tour in 14 years. She said, It's hard just being home, not having that second opinion. He's my comfort blanket, the glue that holds me together. The squadron was set to enjoy six weeks' leave before a homecoming parade. Now, 25 years ago, Pierce Brosnan flies in to shoot scenes for the latest Bond film. In 1997, very free press reporter Sue Warren had the pleasure of interviewing none other than Pierce Brosnan, who was shooting scenes for the 18th Bond film, Tomorrow Never Dies, at Lakenheath and Milton Hall air bases. He was staying at the Angel Hotel in Bury St Edmunds. In the film, Bond steals a piece of computer software and flies to US air base in Okinawa, Milton Hall and Lakenheath cleverly disguised, and meets a scientist who holds the key to fielding a British warship. He said, The Americans were very pleased to have us there and they treated us with the utmost civility. Movie making is an activity which most people don't get to see. Moving on to 50 years ago, Six Formers launched charity minibus plan. In 1972, Six Formers at five Berry St Edmunds schools got together to mark the September changeover to comprehensive education to raise £1,000 to buy a minibus for social work. Students from the County Grammar School for Girls, King Edward VI Grammar School, St Benedict's School, 
and the Silver Jubilee Schools for Girls and Boys were involved in the project. Mini Bus Rush was the name, an idea started by Helen Rampling, 18, of Rushbrook, who was at County Grammar School. She said, It seems more worthwhile doing it with the other schools, especially as they will be going to comprehensive soon. A little more nostalgia. In 1995, TV cook Delia Smith visited Stowmarket Railway Station to meet her namesake, a 153 diesel train. Delia was voted one of the most popular names in East Anglia in a competition to name a fleet of 15 trains by Anglia Railways. Delia, from Coombs near Stowmarket, was surprised by family and friends who arrived to watch as a plaque with her name and image was unveiled on the side of the train. A panel inside the train will give a brief history of her life and achievements. It was a double celebration for the TV cook. Earlier that week, she was presented with an OBE by the Queen for her services to cookery. And now for some letters. Congratulations to Mark Murphy, MBE. Graham Day from Stowmarket writes, Sir... I was delighted to see the coverage of BBC Radio Suffolk presenter Mark Murphy collecting his MBE at Buckingham Palace. An award well deserved for a presenter who serves the Suffolk community and our radio station so well. Always affable on air, but never afraid to ask difficult questions, particularly to politicians, to hold them to account. Mark has made his shows, and particularly the breakfast show, absolutely unmissable. His championing of causes, including litter reduction, knife crime and recently the Kevin Beatty statue, have shown his care and concern for the county of his birth. Like many of us, the fortunes of Ipswich Town are often close to his heart and the weekly conversations with Brian from Melton are now the stuff of Suffolk and UK legend. After retuning his career from motorway mechanics to the microphone, Mark has found his true vocation, which has finally been recognised. Superbly supported on the big day by his wife and fellow presenter Leslie Dolphin, there could have been no greater accolade. Very well done indeed, Mark, from a fellow son of Ipswich and Suffolk. A career-crowning moment indeed. John Scott from Newmarket says, The current situation cannot continue. Further to letter... From Avril Dawson, the chair of Amnesty International, Berry Free Press, April the 29th. As with so many left-leaning, hand-wringing organisations, they criticised the proposed government policy to place asylum seekers in Rwanda, but have no solutions of their own. In the current situation in the English Channel, not inhumane, how many are actual economic migrants and not desperate people seeking safety? Why do so many usually young men arrive here, well briefed, with no documentation, making it almost impossible to deport them? Some interesting facts. The principle of sending asylum seekers to safe third world countries was enshrined in legislation by the last Labour government in laws passed in 1999, 2002 and 2004. The Labour government also sought to strike deals with Tanzania and South Africa. The proposed legislation is very similar to the deal the EU has made with Turkey. It is also similar to the Biden administration deal for asylum seekers to stay in Mexico. The Denmark government is also trying to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. This is not a right-wing policy which sets a terrible example to the world. 
Many countries are struggling to cope with migration and the vast majority of the population of this country want the government to stem the flow of illegal immigration. Whether this proposal ever actually gets implemented is not known. However, the current situation cannot go on. You've got what you voted for. Peter Critchley writes, It beggars belief that people in Berries and Edmonds and Suffolk are complaining about the lack of NHS dentists. This is a conservative area. Most people vote conservative. And when you do this, you automatically vote for an undermining and underfunding of public services for the simple reason that lower taxes, whether national or local, mean less money spent on them. You can't then moan when you've got what you voted for. Only this week, one dentist who had been an NHS dentist for the past 25 years said she had had enough and went private. She said she had no choice. The system was unmanageable. It was underfunded. The new contract was flawed and she couldn't afford not to change. Heartbreaking as it was for her and her patients. When I wrote to Bury MP Joe Churchill about the situation, she forgot to admit that the system was underfunded and certainly didn't express the idea that if we wanted NHS dentists, taxes would have to rise. She certainly didn't mention either that if you want schools, hospitals, the prison service, social care system, mental health services, the police and any other public services to be cut to the bone, then vote Conservative. You can guarantee... You will, your wishes will come true. And now something about the weather. On Friday, it should be 20 degrees. On Saturday, 21 degrees. Sunday, 20 degrees. And Monday, 20 degrees. April showers kept at bay. In April of 2022, we had a lot of contrasts. The heavy snow of March the 31st continued for two more days, then frosty, windy and showery, all in the first week, with most of the rain falling at night and the days being quite cool. It then turned dry and more sunny, and by the 12th, temperatures were getting up to a pleasant 20 degrees for the first time. While parts of Norfolk had some showers on the 14th and 19th, it was quite unique that our area got none at all. We had no more rain for the rest of the month, kept at bay by a plethora of cool coastal winds until a sunny, calm and quite warm day after a frost on the 30th. In all, this April had 23 consecutive dry days, the worst April drought for 15 years. April 2007 had 26 days. Going back 60 years, the next long period with no rainfall at all was 20 dry days in April 1971. The two-month total has only been 38 millimetres, well below the average for one month. Since 1945, Berries and Edmonds has only had five March and April's totals that were drier. 2022 has had only 127 millimetres so far, two inches below average with the river running low and most avid gardeners' water butts empty. Home plans for school and chapel. A Grade 2 listed Sunday school and chapel in Wickhambrook could be converted into residential homes if plans are approved. An application has been submitted to West Suffolk Council to renovate the former Wickhambrook United Reformed Church on Meeting Green. The church, built in 1734, 
closed in February last year due to a twingling, dwindling congregation, unaffordable running costs and it falling into disrepair. Museum looks to the past and future. A Stowmarket attraction which changed its name last month is also marking another milestone. The Food Museum, formerly in the Museum of East Anglian Life, opened its Abbots Hall to the public as part of a £3 million project a decade ago. The 18th century house, which dates from 1709 and was acquired on lease in 2005, was refurbished with nine exhibition rooms and opened to the public in April 2012. Lisa Harris, the museum's collections manager, is responsible for the building's exhibitions. She said, Ten years have flown by, but it is still exciting. There are still so many stories to tell here. Sometimes a visitor will make one small comment and it makes me think about what we can do next. Putting exhibitions together is great fun. We have got this beautiful house which is helping to talk about how people lived, their stories and the bigger picture. When Abbots Hall opened in 2012, we were talking about how our collection related to East Anglia, whereas now the focus is on food and speaking about our collections in a slightly different way. Lisa started the museum in 2001 on a short-term contract, but says she has never had two days the same since. The view of the walled garden from Abbots Hall changes every week of the year. We have volunteers, we are always looking for more, and groups who work in there, but it is all about growing our own, understanding how things grow health and well-being, added Lisa. The museum was established in 1967 and covers 75 acres, including outdoor displays and 17 historic buildings. It contains more than 40,000 objects, including utensils and agricultural machinery. Jenny Cousins, museum director, said, If there's one thing visitors say, it is that the museum is much bigger than they expected. Being in the centre of town, people think, how big can it be? But just to walk from one side to another is one mile. Last year, the museum welcomed 38,000 visitors, which is slightly higher than pre-pandemic levels. A lot of people have been appreciating what's on their doorstep. They might not have been here for 30 years, but they came during the pandemic and want to return, said Jenny. We opened the grounds for free during the lockdown, and I think even that gave people an opportunity to walk around and realise things had changed here. We have got such an amazing sight. One of the developments of the museum in the coming months will be the opening of a large new exhibition space with an area to display high-value items as well as a project to restore the mill to working order and a third scheme to install a new river sculpture trail. Jenny said, We have just taken on another 11 staff and we'll be taking on more over the summer. We have about 35 paid members of staff. We also have around 100 volunteers at the moment, but we're looking for more. We can never have enough staff or volunteers. Meanwhile, she said the museum's change of focus to food was still very much a work in progress, with the decision to change the name taken following a consultation project over the past three or four years. Jenny said, it is a journey and we want people to come and engage with that. Tell us what is missing and what we can do better. Rainwater will help town to bloom. Bury in Bloom has completed the installation of its first 10,000 litre rainwater harvesting tank in the town at Green King, Green King Social Club. 
Now, in front of me, there's a photograph of this tank, and there are nine people around it, and it's so big, those nine people could easily fit into it. The tank, just off Callum Road and sponsored by Bury St Edmunds Town Council and Green King, is the first in a series of changes Bury and Bloom is making to have a positive impact on the environment. The water being collected from the, from the club's roof will be used for watering the town's hanging baskets. David Irvine, Bury and Bloom coordinator, said, If we can get up to 20,000 litres of storage in 2022, we will have made a significant impact. We are not aware of another Bloom group with this sort of rainwater harvesting scheme and we hope it wows the judges of both Anglia in Bloom and Britain in Bloom. Accolade for Building Society Suffolk Building Society's boss said he is thrilled after it scooped a national industry accolade. The society, which has nine branches and agencies across the county, was named Best Building Society at the British Bank Awards. It was also highly commended in the Best Specialist Mortgage Provider category at the event, which is hosted by consumer review website Smart Money People. Suffolk Building Society Chief Executive Richard Norrington said, As a proudly independent building society, we are thrilled to have won these awards and it is even more significant because it is voted for by our members. We see so many of our members at our AGM every year when they give us their positive feedback but this is a real pat on the back that we're delivering on our promise to provide a safe home for their savings and safe homes for our communities. It is a real testament to the hard work and commitment of our staff who surpass customer expectations week in, week out. Trainees join Chelsea Transformation. Trainee gardeners from West Show's Fuller's Mill are helping to build a show garden for the RHS Chelsea Flower Show later this month. Work on building the main avenue garden started on Tuesday with Gary Bean and Jason Gotts, the Fuller's Mill trainees, set to join more than 50 others spending 18 days turning the 22 by 10 metre space into a garden. On May 17th and 18th, Gary from Mildenhall and Jason, who lives near Norwich, will spend two days at Chelsea planting the garden. Gary, 36, began his apprenticeship five years ago and is expecting his task at RHS, RHS Chelsea to be a very different to his day job. Having only watched the show on television, Gary says he was grateful for the opportunity to get hands-on and behind the scenes. Jason, 41, is eight months into a trainee position with Perennial after starting as a volunteer. The Perennial Garden, with love, by designer Richard Mears, will be a classically contemporary garden in a palette of green with soft white and plum undertones, along with paving, bespoke seating and sculptures. Carrying a with love message to the horticulture industry, the garden's main avenue appearance is a first for both the 183-year-old charity, which helps people working in horticulture with and their families and the designer. They hope it will raise awareness of and support for the free information, advice and support Perennial provides people in horticulture and their families. Fuller's Mill Garden is open to the public as a fundraiser for Perennial, formerly the Gardener's Royal Benevolent Fund. We are very excited about how powerfully it will reach those who need our help. A show garden at the world's greatest flower show 
is a unique way for us to reach an audience of supporters who understand the importance of building better futures for those who work. For those who work. A construction business based in Bury St Edmunds is celebrating after winning the Residential Building Firm of the Year Award 2022 for Suffolk. ADCO Construction beat several other Suffolk companies to win the award, part of the London and South East England Prestige Awards, which recognise small and medium-sized businesses that have proved to be the best in their market over the past 12 months. The company, which was set up in 2017, carries out extensions, renovations, conversions and commercial fit-outs, including for West Suffolk Council. Haslau Keeley, Managing Director, said, When we got to the stage of actually being recognised and winning the award, it felt great. I was overwhelmed with joy that our achievements are being recognised and that we are doing the right thing. Currently, ADCO Construction is working on extending the ground floor function room of the Thomas Paine Hotel in Thetford, converting an old barn built in 1899 at Doveton Hall, and is set to commence work renovating a property in York Road, Bury St Edmunds. The company has also worked with West Suffolk Council, stripping derelict warehouses and turning them into brand new office spaces and converting an old garage in St Andrews Street, Bury, to offer vulnerable people without homes a place to stay. We try to give back to the community through West Suffolk Council, Hass said. We want to be recognised as a company that does help the community and we want to create more opportunities to do that. Fudge Maker Scoops a Gold Award A luxury fudge company has earned a top award for its work reducing carbon emissions. Yum Yum Tree Fudge, based on Windmill Avenue Woolpit, has been presented with a gold award as part of Suffolk County Council's Carbon Charter Scheme. Carbon Charter Awards are given to businesses which are finding ways to reduce their impact on the environment by reducing their carbon emissions in day-to-day business. Yum Yum Tree Fudge has been recognised for its contribution, which includes reducing carbon emissions by over 50%, moving away from all fossil fuels used in production of their products, replacing their diesel vans for electric, and promoting carbon reduction to their customers and stakeholders. Adrian Turner, owner of Yum Yum Tree Fudge, said, Receiving this gold award is a real credit to our staff and a thank you to our customers. We work incredibly hard to reduce our carbon impact, aiming to be a carbon negative business by 2025. We no longer fly in any ingredients using local produce where possible. We use dairy alternatives in our products such as oats and coconut milk. We generate power for our product production line from solar panels and we only use biodegradable and compostable packaging, all without implicating the appearance, flavour and quality of our products. I hope we can be an inspiration to other local businesses in Suffolk to show that reducing carbon emissions is possible, whatever the nature of your work. Yum Yum Tree Fudge was presented with its award at a carbon charter event at Woodbridge Tide Mill, itself a carbon charter gold award holder. Suffolk County Council has been running the Carbon Charter Scheme for 12 years, with 264 Suffolk businesses being awarded bronze, silver or gold. Yum Yum Tree makes fudge with British butter, 
British milk and British sugar, mostly grown in East Anglia. Its secret recipes are gluten-free, nut-free and without eggs or hydrogenated fats. They have all natural flavours and natural colours, real extracts and ingredients. Councillor Richard Routes, a Suffolk County Council's deputy leader, said, Yum Yum Tree Fudge is a real credit to Suffolk and I'm proud that our county is home to businesses like this who are forward-thinking, but more importantly, are taking action now on climate change. Family who lost home in fire, grateful for people's kindness. A family who lost their home in a devastating fire at a thatched building have described people's kindness as incredible as they start from scratch. More than £4,000 has so far been raised for Claire and Sean Pickering and their 11-year-old son Spike, whose Hengrave home was largely destroyed in a huge blaze at the historic cottage on April 25th. Family members have launched a crowdfunding page to help them replace their belongings as they have lost everything bar a few special items in the fire. While they do have insurance and that is being looked into, Claire's sister, Tyler Warren, said the financial donations were to keep them going for now and get them sorted. Claire, who had lived there with Sean for 13 years, said, The firemen were amazing and I can't thank them enough. They saved my wedding ring, family photos and some of Spike's precious toys. My family and friends have been so supported and have helped us so much. The kindness of people is incredible. My house was so beautiful and quirky and is still my favourite place, even in the state it is. We're starting from scratch, where we're all safe and that's what's most important. The family's cat, Silas, had also luckily turned up after a horrific few days of uncertainty, not knowing whether he was safe, said Tyler, 30, a nurse. She said the fire ripped through the whole house, adding, there's not really anything left. The Pickering family have moved into a flat, but it is unfurnished so they face those costs as well as having to replace essentials like clothes. The fire investigation is ongoing. And here is an update from the East Anglian Daily Times on Wednesday the 11th of May. According to Suffolk Fire and Rescue Service, an investigation into the cause of the fire revealed that a spark from a chimney that ejected onto the dry reed thatch roof initiated the blaze. A total of 26 appliances from across Suffolk were called to the fire in Hengrave near Berry St Edmunds on the evening of Monday, April the 25th. The roof of the thatched cottage was completely destroyed and the road had to be closed due to the amount of smoke and to allow for a structural engineer to assess structural damage to the building. All persons in the two-storey property were accounted for but had to find alternative accommodation for the night. Warning after purse snatched. Police have warned shoppers to be vigilant after a purse was stolen at Bury St Edmunds supermarket. The purse was snatched from a shopping bag in a trolley at Aldi in Dettington Way on Saturday between 10 and 11am. The victim was a woman aged 40. A police spokesman said, Please be vigilant to opportunities thefts. And also, menswear shop at converted store. A menswear shop is to open in a landmark Bury St Edmunds town centre building. Book Taverner, which specialises in men's suits and tailoring, is taking one of the new units at the converted former Palmer's department store in Buttermarket. Palmer's have been converted into two ground floor shops 
and eight apartments on the first, second and third floors. And now this is social media. Welcome to Chatterbox, a weekly sideways look at what's got you taken to the keyboard on social media this week. The story that a developer has agreed a land promotion agree, sorry, the story that a developer has agreed a land promotion agreement on a 279 acre of land next to the A11 in Barton Mills, which could see it used as a business park, had people typing. Janick which has an office in Bury St Edmunds, has entered into the agreement on land located on the Cambridge-Norwich A11 Tech Corridor, which could offer the potential for future commercial development. But some were not happy, including Denise Alexander, who said, it's about time we stopped using valuable agriculture for building on. Someone who was also annoyed by the plans was Kevin Pick. He said, they can't even fill the land put to one side at Red Lodge on the A11. Why destroy more fields and agriculture? Ian Danks said, Would be a shame to lose this area. It's a stunning view from the top. Jan Lengyel said, The development should not be allowed on the basis of the climate emergency and a number of other considerations, namely Greenbelt agricultural land for industrial development. Why do the authorities neglect their position as guardians of ensuring the well-being of the folks and the planet in general? Andrew Mitson felt there was another plan for the land by development. He said this is a backdoor way of getting houses on the land when no businesses want to move there, so go for housing instead. Look at what's happened in Haverhill. John Hellard said the developers may well want to have another look at this plan. He said, haven't done their homework. Highways England have plans right through the middle of that site for the five ways bypass, just waiting for finance. Chris Arben simply said, Berry becoming another Milton Keynes, with Led Smith adding, Bloody country be covered in concrete before long. And now we have a special mention for our editor, Claire Meller, who plays the flute very beautifully. On Sunday the 22nd of May at 3pm, the trio Sospiroso, which is flute, cello and harp, are playing at the Market Cross. Tickets cost £15 and can be booked online at themarketcross.com. Now for a weekend thought provided by the Religious Society of Friends or the Quakers. Our beliefs should not cause division. The words believe and belief are English words that seem to drive social division. Some of us believe that the Covid vaccine is harmless and effective, while some of us believe that the jab violates the body and puts it at risk of harm. We are separate into different sorry, we we separate into different camps on something like this without nu nuanced persuasive dialogue. There is no possibility of the one party convincing the other party of what is true. We can't simply tell another person to believe something that they cannot. When I looked up the word belief, I found that the 12th century believe meant confidence in a person or thing or faith in a religion. It related closely to the West Germanic word ga lobon, to hold dear, to esteem or trust. In the 13th century, this concept of belief or trust in God commonly took on the mantle of a creed, that is, of essential religious doctrine distilling by the 16th century into the acceptance of something as fact. And so it is today. 
There are those who believe as fact that because the essential antigenetic composition of a vaccine cannot be understood, it is more likely to be harmful. And there are those who believe the opposite. I guess it all comes down to trust. Belief in conveys the essence of confidence in someone or something. It is broader than doctrinal belief. This softer extension sits comfortably alongside faith, originally without any religious connotation, meaning loyalty or the quality of acting in good or bad faith. By the 14th century, the Latin word fides bore a religious translation and was, by the 16th century, related more closely to its sister, belief, redefined as things held true as a matter of religious doctrine. Most people have a need to make their own sense of the word they inhabit. I believe that faith can help with that, but not always through the unfamiliar and unexplained lexicon of another. For God's sake, we need not pick fights to prove that we are right, always and absolutely, as a badge of our human identity and worth. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. There is the one website address for Claire's concert, themarketcross.com. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then... It's goodbye from Nick, Jill, Pat and Claire. Goodbye. Bye. Been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St. Edmunds studio.